So we are two sermons today and next week away from finishing the topic of the gifts in the body. I know some of you are very skeptical about that prediction. And I'm not a prophet, but it's kind of where we're at. It's okay. We've already got things planned and how we're moving forward. So um, we're going to be finishing 1 Corinthians 14 today. We're going to be dealing with a lot of subjects that are considered controversial. Uh, As you know, we've been touching upon the tongues issue. And one thing that I want to share with you is a couple of books that may help you in your spare time if you need to get your mind around this a little bit better. The first one I want to share with you is a book you can see from the jazzy and groovy 70s cover uh, that it's called Speaking in Tongues. Uh, And it is by Joseph Dillow, D-I-L-L-O-W. And 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 I'm sure somebody online will email me and give me some flack for this. But in my estimation, Joseph Dillow is probably one of the top-minded, consistent theologians I've ever read in my life. Uh, And so if if you're somebody who happens to own a copy of uh, Reign of the Servant Kings or Final Destiny, uh, those two books are treasure troves and gold mines to get you thinking. But this little book, Speaking in Tongues, is a very well-done book. I got it at Goodwill for $1.29. So you can definitely find it online pretty cheap. See, some of you are like, he has so many books in his library. My whole library costs like $10.43 because I bought it all at Goodwill. <laughs> so, uh, but, but anyway, this is a very good book. Another one that is a little bit more difficult to find, and it's, and it's a little bit more pricey, it's not in print anymore, uh, is the Modern Tongues Movement, okay? The Modern Tongues Movement. You can tell from this jazzy cover, it was released in 1972. This is by Robert Gromacki, G-R-O-M-A-C-K-I, Gromacki. Uh, and, and the reason why you say, well, it was in 72, it's, it's, it's 50 years out. Isn't it out of date? No. The, the research he did was from the Word of God. The Word of God is always relevant, If it's true, it's always relevant. It's everybody else that's out of step with it. So if he's done his research in the Word of God, it's not irrelevant at any time. Uh, So I encourage you to also get this one. This is probably a little bit more analytical read, but it's not a difficult read. So I want to put both of those in front of you in case you want to research this a little bit more. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off with last week. We're going to start in verse 20. Forgive me, verse 21. The exhortation to the Corinthians is don't be children in your thinking. You got to grow up. You have to think a little bit more soberly, and you have to evaluate what Paul is saying and embrace it. Why? Because he's an apostle without the writings of the New Testament being codified and solidified at that time. He is writing them a letter that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a situation where they need to embrace his teaching and follow through. If you want to know what a mark of spiritual maturity is, it's never knowledge. It's always obedience. You can know very little about the Word of God, but if you're obedient to it, you will find that you are much further along down the path than somebody who can spout off every little trivial detail and try to uh, corrupt you with their knowledge. Knowledge does one thing. It puffs up. What builds up? Do we remember? No one knows it? Who said it? Love. Who said it first? Get you a lollipop, Kathy Grant. That's amazing. You know what? You can have one of the dad donuts today. That's great. There you go. Sell it on out there. Love is what puffs up. Love is about applying doctrine of how God loves us, how Jesus loved us enough to die for us, and put it into motion, outflowing towards other people. You can sit and argue with somebody all day. But if you walk around 
being superior because of your knowledge, did you love them? See, the call is much deeper. The call is much deeper than that. And what Paul's promoting here is love. We've got to be grown up in our thinking about this. And especially if everybody in the church of Corinth was abusing the gift of tongues and trying to emulate a gift that they didn't have, well, now they're in a lot of shaky and deceitful waters. How do you sort that out? Paul wants to correct them. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now if you remember, this is a quotation from Isaiah 28, if you were here from last week. If not, you'll have to listen to last week's later. And this was an idea of when actual foreign languages that were understood from the rebellious and continually idolatrous Jewish people were heard, it meant the fact that the judgment of God was on the door and he was going to use a foreign nation in order to spank his kids. He had no problem doing that whatsoever. They were out of line. He had sent prophets to plead to them over and over and over. You need to repent. You need to stop it. You need to get with it. You know about God. You're just neglecting everything about God. And this is why you find yourself in a spiritual car wreck. That's a problem. So since you won't listen to the pleasant pleas of a prophet to come and find your rest with the Lord, I'm now going to send an army to come in and discipline you. So tongues are a sign of judgment. So when we move on and he applies it here, he gives an explanation. Tongues are a sign not for believers, those who believe, but to who? Unbelievers. Now, this is interesting because what you can deduce from this, remember, Paul spoke in tongues. He was an apostle. He had that gift. But what you can deduce from this and everything else he said in this chapter is that tongues really doesn't have a place in the corporate assembly of the body of Christ. It doesn't have a place there, which means it was primarily used for evangelism. And when we walked through the four instances where it's mentioned in other passages in the New Testament, you see that that's the thrust of that passage and the fact that Jewish people are always present. Moving on, but prophecy, preaching, speaking forward the word of God, is for a sign, not for unbelievers, for those who believe. Now remember, here is the condition. Therefore, if the whole church, what? Assembles. Now I think that's interesting because the word church, ecclesia, means assembly. That's what it is. If we're all together, me and all y'all are together, okay? And all speak in tongues. And ungifted men, people who don't have the, the, the gift of interpretation of tongues, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Can you imagine? Someone who doesn't believe in Christ walks in and we're all just blurting out stuff. You think they're going to stick around? You think they got something to say to their friend once they walk out those doors? absolutely we're going to be on the internet quicker than you can say you can snap or whatever i don't even have a good analogy for that whatever moving on but but if all prophecy sorry if all prophesy if everybody is speaking something that everybody can understand from god's word and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters enters what the assembly of believers he is convicted by all why because he's hearing about sinners needing a savior because he's hearing about people who can't control their thoughts all the time and people who lie to get advantage on things and people who will deceive if they will come out ahead and think that they're not wrong and people who just refuse because of their own puffed up pride to think that what they have doesn't stink. Guess what? We all stink. We all do. In fact, everybody see? Yes, you do, Jay. Stop it. The, the title of the sermon today is The Order of the Assembly. The first title was We Need Body Order. And I was going to see if you guys were going to get it. And then I thought, you know what? 
that's dumb and gross, so we're not going to do that. So I changed it. In fact, I think I shared it with Roxanne, and I think she kind of looked at me like, I don't know. That's all I need to know. So, but if we prophesy, you, you become convicted of sin. What happens? You're called to account. See, that's the amazing thing is, regardless if you believe or don't believe, regardless if you're a Christian or not a Christian, everybody is responsible and accountable at some point. Well, I don't think God exists. Okay, that doesn't help you in your accountability situation because when he judges you, you still got to have something to say. So when they hear the word of God, the whole purpose of this is to come under conviction and say, I've got to make a decision about more than just the here and now and what makes me happy and doesn't make me happy. There's eternal things that happen after I close my eyes in this life. Notice the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Why? Because God sees everything. Remember how we talked about how foolish it was? Adam and Eve's sin. They hear God coming. Fig leaves. That's the answer. He'll never know. Let's find a tree. We'll hide behind that too. He'll never know. Somehow when we're in the midst of sin, we forget that God is omnipresent and he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. There's nothing we hide from. And here's what's interesting is it doesn't even say that the person that heard the word of God had to really hide from anything. It's the fact that they're having to deal with what's really in their heart. That's the problem. The truth exposes a heart. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Why? Because the message that was being communicated was clearly understood. It wasn't done in tongues. Am I on back there, fellas? Just making sure. Okay, so make sure. I want to walk around on cartwheels or something. So what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, okay, so talking about when we all get together, just like right now, each one of you has a psalm. Now go through, look at them. Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, has a special music, has an announcement. That not in your guys's? Okay, I must have read off the page, just making sure. But what does he say? Regardless of what comes to the forefront when the body is assembled together and needs to be communicated, what is the criteria? Well, let all things be done for what? Edification. Real quick, what does edify mean? Build up. It's the idea of erecting an edifice, if we were to use it literally. But when we talk about it in figurative terms, we're talking about that the body of Christ is to go up, 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 up. And every single person has an equal part of exercising their spiritual gift and playing and building up the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you have a gift. I talked to somebody, I don't even remember who it was. It's probably good. I'm not going to call them out. But they said, well, I don't have a gift. I said, are you a believer in Christ? Well, yeah. Then you have what? You have at least one. So we need to know it. We need to know what it is. Some of you haven't turned in your results from your spiritual gift thing. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why are you so shy? The dog ate it. Guess what? We have more out there, and you can fill it out here where there are no dogs. Okay? So we have these little slips in there. If you've gone through the booklet and the answer sheet, you fill that stuff out. Again, the test isn't foolproof. It's not perfect. There's always a margin of error. But it gives us a really great starting point. Just write it on here, fold it up, drop it in the box back there. Be the best offering we receive, I promise. Because what that will begin to unfold is, 
How can everybody here serve in building up, edifying the body of Christ? That's what we want. Now, if you're somebody who's been keeping tracks with, track with this, or if you want to look in your handout and pull it out, you will have a notes sheet. And some of you should have in the front of your Bible, if you bothered to listen to me at all, so I'm not too hopeful on this, you should have a title that says, Things I Learn About Tongues. And you should have a good little list going on of things that we've learned about tongues this far. Guess what? You're getting ready to learn four more that show us this, okay? So here we go. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue. Now stop. What's the setting again? The assembly of the body. So before he was saying, okay, prophecy is trumping tongues because you can understand that. You can't understand the tongues issue. You've got to have an interpreter. And if you don't have an interpreter, it's not beneficial to anyone. Therefore, it doesn't really hold place in the body. But if you are gathered as a body and someone has a tongue that they want to share, let's talk about how to do it. There's an orderly way to do it. Here's what he says. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. There's your first point there of what we see today. You will never have, you should never have, let's say it this way, more than two or three that have a tongue to speak. Everybody see that? Now here's what bothers me about this. This isn't common practice that we see today. Sometimes when you deal with someone who believes in tongue speaking and they want to exercise that in the church, you find that everybody's speaking in tongues or that a majority of people are or they've made it a requirement for either a second blessing that doesn't exist or to solidify your salvation, of which Paul has already said, not everybody's going to speak in tongues. So now we've got a doctrinal problem against the Word of God. Understand this. Your experience can never dictate what God's Word says. God's Word is what gives you the insight on your experience. That's how you know it's from God or not. It either congeals with His Word, lines up with His Word, or it violates His Word. So notice, the first thing is there will only be two or three and each in turn. In other words, both won't be speaking at the same time. You're not going to have two or three people trying to outspeak one another. But yet that's often not what we see or what's been conveyed to us if we've had been in that midst of that situation. So it has to be orderly in turn. And here's the next one. One must interpret. You have to have an interpreter. Why? Why do you have to have an interpreter if tongues is going to be exercised in the assembly? You won't understand it? Will it edify anybody? No. And remember, that's Paul's goal in chapter 14. If you're going to do it, it's got to build people up. It's got to send them upward. It's got to draw them closer to God. And if they can't understand it, it's just confusing. Remember, no one wants to go to confusion church. So it says here, but if there is no interpreter, now pause. That tells you two things. Remember this. The person with the gift of speaking in tongues doesn't understand what they're saying because it's a different language. It's not an angelic language or anything like that. It is an actual foreign language that they don't understand even though they have this gift. So they can't interpret it themselves. Previously we saw, if you speak in a tongue, pray that you would interpret it. Why? Because immediately you can't. So they don't even know the language they're saying. Number two, they will know whether or not an interpreter is in the assembly. How do we know that? Look what it says. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or the most three. In turn, one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in church. Let him speak to himself and God. You're to say nothing. If you have a tongue and you know that there's not an interpreter here, you just be quiet. 
Now, is there anything here about this gift being uncontrollable? No, I just couldn't help myself. I had to blurt it out. No. Now, do you guys want to hear a funny little story? I'm so glad you're so excited about this. Back when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, we had just moved to Indiana, okay? So I'm this bitter teenager because we've uprooted from where I was in good old God's country, Kentucky, and we've gone to southern Indiana, which is our hated rivals, right? The Wildcats and the Hoosiers, we hated each other. So here I am in enemy territory, okay? And all my drums were packed up. I could not play drums. Very upset about that because we didn't have any room for them in where we were living. And so the opportunity came along for me to play drums in a southern gospel band. I had never played southern gospel music in my life. And some of you have seen me play up here, and you're like, he has no business being in a southern gospel band, right? Thank you. Uh, but I get an amen for no business being. So I, I, I got in this band, and we all of a sudden started traveling around. I'm talking like we were on a tour bus. We would get up early at 5 o'clock in the morning. We'd get on the bus, we would drive to a location two, three hours away, we'd get there early, we'd set up all of our stuff and do the sound check and dress up in our little monkey suits and the whole deal, and we had this list of about an hour and a half worth of music that we would set up and we would play for everybody. And then, of course, they always had a big potluck afterwards, right? Especially if we were traveling down into Kentucky for a show, you knew there was going to be an awesome potluck and a gravesite not too far away. That's just how they run churches and stuff down there, okay? So we were playing one time in Evansville, Indiana. And we had this song that we did called, I've Been to Calvary, okay? And the tenor starts it out, I've been to Calvary. And when he hits the word Calvary, everybody comes in, boom, you hit the cymbals and all the other instruments come in, and it's like this big, massive thing. When we did that, this woman stood up, started speaking in tongues like crazy, and threw her hands out, and she clocked her husband right across the nose. He went down, okay? And it was one of those situations where you're sitting there playing, you're like, he's either slain in the spirit or dead, I don't know. But it's one of those things. When your worship isn't orderly, people get hurt. That's my point. I will never forget that memory, though. It was fantastic. Chris, yes, sir. No. We're talking specifically here about the fact of it happening in the local assembly. Now, are you saying that if speaking in tongues happened in an evangelism context outside of that, would the person be the hearer that could understand the language be that? Be the interpreter? Is that what you're saying? That's the evidence that we see in Acts 2. It is a sign. It's a sign of God's judgment. Absolutely. But they can understand. In Acts 2, when you have Pentecost take place... You have all these people from all around that are gathered in one place to celebrate Pentecost. And the comment that they make twice that Luke records is, is how is it do we hear the oracles of God in our own language? So notice, they can understand it, and it's obviously an evangelistic system to get their attention. But that's not how they got saved. They got saved by hearing Peter's message and coming to faith in Christ. So yes, it can be a situation in evangelism where the unsaved person, they might not have the gift of tongues, but they don't need it if they understand the language. Does that make sense? Okay, good question. Yes, so hopefully that's a little bit clearer on that if I haven't clearly communicated that. So back to our text here. Now it moves forward to verse 29. Now this brings up the idea of prophets. We're not just going to single out people who speak in tongues, but those who are speaking forward the word of God. How should that look? Notice what this says. 
Let two or three prophets, preachers, speak and let the others pass judgment. Now, you guys really got that pass judgment part down. I just want to say thanks a lot for that one. But what I love is that the text said there should be two or three of me up here. How long do you think that church service would last? You know why? Because God don't care about your plans. He cares about whether or not you're worshiping him. Oh, did I step on somebody's toes? Yeah, it's okay. God doesn't care. I, I mean, I'm sorry. And I know this sounds like a, I, I don't understand when our lives became so important that God has to be put in a compartment box and only be worshiped in that time. And it, who cares if you beat the Methodist to Pizza Ranch? It's okay. Where's Delano? It's a buffet, right? It's, Delano just keeps bringing pizza out. It's okay. You're going to be there. Are you worshiping God in spirit and truth? That's what he's worried about. That's what I'm worried about. I'm most concerned about our spiritual condition at all times. And when we find ourselves in pockets of unbelief or for somehow it stepped on my toes or infringed upon my personal time or something, I'm going to tell you this. God is not pleased with that. So we cannot be people who are just so camped out on our position that we're just going to have God when we want him and put him back when we don't want him. He's not an object. He's a person. He's your father. He died for you. There's a lot more at stake there than just convenience. So I think that's important. What if we had a church service that lasted six hours long? I couldn't handle it. Why? We get tired of praising God? You tell me. Think about it. Moving on here. It says, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. Let them differentiate in what is said let them cut through it and kind of weigh it out in other words we should all be thinking sheep we shouldn't just be mindless sheep think about it compare scripture with scripture does that add up be a good berean listen and go find out in the scriptures if those things are so i'm not always going to get it right but guess what the word of god does that's where you check so notice the next part here but if a revelation is made to another who is seated. Now notice the idea of a revelation is different from tongues and prophets. Why is that? Because the New Testament hadn't been completed at this point. And so what he's saying is, if God has got something to say in the midst of your assembly, he's going to give that to somebody and that person needs to speak. Now notice that in everything that we've covered over these 44 sermons that we've been going through, this study of, of, of spiritual gifts and stuff, we've never had somebody who has a spiritual gift of revelation. That's just not something that exists in Scripture. However, that doesn't mean that if God's got something to say and he wants to interrupt the worship or the proceedings of what's being communicated, he can give it to somebody in that moment and do that. Why? The New Testament isn't completed. And so at this time, that's what he would do. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Wait a second. God's got something today to, to, to say. Whoever was speaking needs to stop step out of the way and hand the mic over to the person who's got something fresh that God wants to say. Now, the problem is, is people try to do that now. And they don't recognize that the problem of doing that now is saying that there should be something additional in your Bible past revelation. Because if we want to make the claim, well, God is speaking now, then you better get out some blank pages and start filling this up. It's a very dangerous position. Because now you're saying that you're speaking for God. I don't know that I want to be a person that does that and saying, well, this is what God gave me. This is what God told me. I'm going to tell you this. God doesn't tell you anything that's not in here, period. You know, well, I heard God say, no, you didn't. 
I'll go ahead and say you didn't. You know, well, I want to hear God speak. Then read scripture out loud. That's how God speaks. This is his word. This is the completed word. But we can't get sensational. We're, we're so busy looking for a new experience in Christianity that we've forsaken the basic doctrines that he's given us just to know him more. And we're suffering because of that. It's, 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 it's an it's a, um, epidemic that we can successfully label evangelicalism. That's the problem. Okay, If you want to do more research on that, I encourage you to do so. But we have, have, have abandoned fundamentalism, which means I believe that the word of God is the inerrant word of God uh, from cover to cover. And we've gotten into evangelicalism, which has put on a show and has made the church a show. That's a problem. It's a very big problem. And our churches are suffering right now. I don't know if you've read any news about what's happening to the Southern Baptist Convention. Wave bye to it. It's gone. It's gone. It's being destroyed. It was infiltrated from the inside out, and it's being torn down and dismantled right now. And, and, and people who are considered faithful men of the word of God in that denomination are not standing up and taking their stand and saying, no, we won't settle for this. We will settle for God's word, and that's it. They're dying. That denomination, the largest evangelical denomination in the world, is dying right now in front of our eyes. We're watching it. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us we're going to see a great apostasy from the faith before the rapture happens. So don't be surprised that that's taking place. It's all part and parcel of what God's already told us. Moving on. I'm sorry to hammer so many of these heavy subjects, but we got heavier subjects coming, and i got to prepare you for it. All right? So moving on. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one. You can all speak in turn. You can all have God's word clearly communicated in turn to one another. So that, here's the reason, all may learn and be exhorted. Does that sound like edified? So that everybody can be built up because that's the point. And the spirits of prophets, oh, go back. And the spirits of prophets are subject. That word means submissive to prophets. In other words, everybody can control what they're saying. Everybody can choose whether or not to speak forward or not speak forward. But what it won't be is it won't be a frenzied, ecstatic, I can't handle it, I'm so flipped out in the spirit kind of thing, okay? Back when I first came to faith in Christ a long, long time ago, I went to a revival meeting that was taking place at a church. Of course, it was in Kentucky. But anyway, in doing that, and this guy was changing people's fillings from gray to gold. Anybody see that in scripture? No, I wish I would have been more knowledgeable at that time. He would sit here and he would prophesy. He had one of those handheld cassette recorders. That tells you how long ago it was. He had a handheld cassette recorder. He would put his hand on this person's head. He would speak a prophecy in there. And then he would throw them to the ground, eject the tape, throw it on. And then he did like this. And his right-hand man would go and give him another cassette. Throw it in. Go the next guy. Bam. Here's what you will do with your life. Good. Throw it on his chest. Move on to the next. It's like an assembly line. And I just sit back there watching. I didn't know what to think. I was just bowled over. I was like, you know. And my cousin kept looking at me. Is this true? Is this true? I'm like, man, I don't know. It pays to know the word of God to know whether these things are true. So moving on here. Prophets can control what they're doing. This word subject is hupotasso. It's the idea of being in a position of submission because you have love in the midst of it. I am submitting myself. I am voluntarily placing myself under a headship that is greater than mine because of my love for God in that situation. Now, this is why it's interesting. Pay attention. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion. Okay? 
but of what? Of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, you won't go to any assembly of believers, and if the confusion is in the midst of all of it, guess what? It's not from God. It's not. God is about having a peaceable and orderly assemble of brothers and sisters in Christ. Not crazy. So you can immediately lick your finger and hold it to the wind to determine what's going on in front of your eyes. Now, is everybody excited about this wonderful topic that we're going to cover on Father's Day? The women are to keep silent in the churches. Jay? We have a post outside to tie Jay to. And a couple of whips available. Either that or you can drop some bars of soap in a tube so I can beat him with it. I don't care. Hey, church discipline, brother. Anyway, the women are to keep silent in churches. Now question, just without going any further, why does this sound bad? Feminist movement, Right? I'm thankful none of you brought brawls to burn today. Thank you. We can talk about this stuff. We're adults. Come on. But that not that what our world does? This is a real touchy subject for people, and I haven't understood why when you just read the text for what it says. And if you understand a little bit about the culture at that time, what was the problem in Corinth? Everybody go back and think about what were they dealing with culturally? What was the problem? Everybody was What? Everybody's speaking in tongues. Did they all have the gift? No, but were they going crazy in their assembly, trying to act like they were, so everybody would say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. They're showboaters. Isn't that a problem? Okay. So now keep that in mind and watch just how this unfolds. Just walk through it with me, okay? Have a gracious spirit for a change. Not that you don't normally, but I'm glad you're listening. That's good. So here we go. The women are to keep silent in the churches for your causal conjunction. Here's an explanation about why this needs to happen. They are not permitted to speak, but are to, same word, hupotasso, subject themselves just as the law also says, just as God's law would agree to in this situation, to voluntarily, out of love, subject themselves in this situation or to bring themselves voluntarily under the headship of another. Now, here's what happens. That makes me feel inferior. That makes me feel like nobody. That makes me feel like nothing. Stop for a second and back up. In first century times, women wouldn't have been allowed to sit in on a situation like this. They treated women like trash. I mean, bad. They were considered not even human in some situations, especially how the Greeks thought. The Greeks were so in love, this this Hellenistic thought that carried over from Alexander's time totally infiltrated Rome, okay? And Rome had no choice. Notice that there's no Roman language. Have you guys noticed that? The Romans at that time spoke what? Greek, because it had had such a bearing. Everything about that was about the majesty and the beauty of the human physique. And the only female forms that they found worthy to extol in their midst were that of the gods little g gods athena right aphrodite that kind of stuff what do we know about them demons that's exactly what they are because they're trying to corrupt the nature of the almighty creator god and so you find that there's no credit whatsoever for women they were meant for serving men and having babies and not good for much else 
That is not how the church or how Jesus Christ ever treated women in this situation. They actually had a much more respectful and dignified life in here. Now, I know this is a touchy subject with people. Why would it be at this point? Well, might be that Paul heard through the grapevine about Corinth that maybe some of the ladies were causing problems. Now, I don't know that ladies would cause problems in that situation. But maybe that was a situation where a majority of the controversy was coming from, possibly. Thankfully, Paul has not left us alone or isolated in this subject. He's given us more scripture to deal with. So what I'm going to ask you to do is take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And probably if we can compare Scripture with Scripture, we can get a better understanding, a greater handle on the situation and how this might have been communicated. Now, ladies, if you're going to give me evil glares like that, do it after I'm done preaching, not while I'm trying to get through this, okay? I'm just kidding. I love you, ladies. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you'll look for just a moment at verses 1 through 8, all of that has to do with men handling themselves in a proper way in the assembly of believers. So it's not just that he's picking on ladies. Please don't ever think that. He's not. Paul is an equal offensive employer, okay? Verse 9, now watch this. Likewise, now right there, you should already recognize that he's balancing out some scales here. In the same way, okay? I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Ladies, are you dressed properly today? Did your brother show up to meet you or meet Jesus today? It's probably a good thing to ask. Where is your body directing them? To Christ or you? That needs to be handled sometimes. At my last church, I actually had to take a woman aside and send her home. I told her, I said, you can't be here like that. She said, why not? said because i can see everything that god gave you that's wrong you got to go she was had a very low cut shirt on we can't have it and what was made it more difficult was she was pretty much a brand new believer in jesus thankfully she understood but you can't do that why because you are not the object of worship you are not the focus of worship if people came to adore you and if you dressed up in such a way as to be adored by people at church you came to church for the wrong reasons Jesus Christ is the focus, not any of us. Male or female, doesn't matter. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Notice how he gives this, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair. Are you saying I can't braid my hair? Oh my gosh, you're so legalist. Keep going. The sentence isn't completed. Don't put a period there, okay? And gold and pearls are costly garments. Back then, ladies used to do up their hairdos in such a way as they wanted the attention. And so sometimes they would take strands of gold and weave through them. Sometimes they would adorn themselves in such jewels that you couldn't help but to see them because they're reflecting the sun off when they walk in the assembly. Like, is this the new Jerusalem on legs that just came in? What is going on in here? Okay? But what are they trying to do? Draw attention to themselves. Dangerous. Dangerous. So, notice what it says, verse 10. But rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Ladies, do you want to be smoking hot? Some of you are nervous to answer that. The answer is yes, you do. Okay? How does God tell you to do that? Good works. Now think about this. 
What Paul's essentially saying is, is that if your concern about your external appearance is overshadowed, the condition of your internal appearance before God, your priorities are out of whack. Your priorities have been skewed greatly. Because good works are what makes someone lovely. It makes someone absolutely stellar and gorgeous and beautiful. It is good works before God. Let's be honest, that's the person who really we're looking to please here, right? To be pleasing to Him. You say, well, are you saying that it's wrong for me to wear makeup? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if it's overshadowed your quiet time or your prayer life with the Lord, priorities are wrong. How do we look before the Lord? Let's get that answered first. And guess what? If that's been answered first and it's in its proper place, then everything else will just flow out as a representation of the main thing. Keep Christ first. It says here, verse 11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, here's the thing. Oh, my gosh. Why does he bring this up again? He's such a chauvinist. That's the problem. Do you realize that in Greek situations in the first century, they wouldn't even allow women to learn? You weren't allowed to learn. Some of them didn't know how to read, didn't know how to write. See, we look at this and we say, good grief, why is Paul trying to hold women down and come against them? Why does he hate them so much? No, no, no. If we understand the culture at that time, we actually recognize that he's promoting the fact that they be educated and informed just as well as everybody else. There's just a certain way to do it. It's the idea of let them learn. Why? Because everybody else that's pagan and godless in the society is saying they can't learn. They're chattel. That's not what he's saying here. He says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man now pause for a second and keep the context in view it's the idea of not having a superior and subservient role over a male does it say that women can't teach women it does not in fact the scriptures show us that that happens older women in the church are to be teaching younger women in the church that is to be happening for a healthy church does it say that women can't teach children i hope not otherwise amy's in real trouble right but notice that that's not the case at all either the idea is they're not to be in a position when the church is assembled together of exercising authority over a man they say why is that in the situation paul gives you the answer if we would just keep reading look what it says she is to remain quiet verse 13 where am i at in here i'm not even following myself there we go 13 four causal conjunction here's your explanation watch this this is the very first thing he gives you two reasons here's the first one four it was adam who was first created and then eve stop what's he telling you he just gave you a reason Why a woman is not to be in a preaching position over the assembly of the body. Why is that? Because it's about the created order. Because God created things in the beginning, in Genesis, in a certain way that he still wants modeled and communicated, even in the New Testament church. So that's the first reason. God created things in this order. He desires to keep that order in line. When you don't get that order in line, you have corrupted and infringed upon people's understanding of Genesis in doing that. You say, well, that's quite a stretch. Really? How's the women pastors movement working out right now in America? It's not doing well. Have you followed it? It's a dumpster fire. It's exactly what it is. You say, well, do you hate women? I love women. I'm married to women. 
Okay? I absolutely love women. I will go ahead and tell you this. There is more godly counsel that comes out of my wife than comes out of my brain. So I praise God for that. Paul is not in any way saying there's no value, there's no substance, there's no worth in that. He's not saying that at all. He's saying because of the way that God has created things, this is the order that God desires in this situation. But then he gives you a second example that moves on here. Notice, and it was not Adam, excuse me, who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Transgression. I know what you think. Oh my gosh. So Paul's going to hold this woman's sin against me and that's why I can't be up there in front of everybody? That's not what he's saying. Don't miss what he's saying here. What happened in the garden? Was Eve deceived? Now here's the problem with deceive. Think about the idea of deception. Deception is you're going along about life and you're moving on and it's no big deal and then you recognize way after the fact I got deceived. When did that happen? Back there. Everybody see that? The whole way that this is set up and the construction of the grammar here in Greek is she was duped. She got hoodwinked. Now, does that mean that she's dumb? No, she fell to temptation. Anybody here not ever fall to temptation? Okay. If you haven't, then you're not as dumb as Eve. Should... No, no, that's not what it's saying at all. We're all susceptible to temptation. And what happened to her? She was clearly deceived. What was Adam's problem? Here, honey, take this apple. In fact, you read the text and you're like, he's standing right there. What is this dude's problem? Here's the problem. Think about what he's saying here. When women lead, what does that do to our men? It turns us into mush. It turns us into unreasoning idiots. Why? Because Adam saw what was fully going on and he said, oh, yep. And eight of it. Now, maybe this could be an act of compassion where it's like, well, I don't want my wife to be separated from God by herself, so I'll get separated with her. Because the fear after that was if they reach out and grab the tree of life and eat of it, they will live forever in a sinful state and can never be redeemed. That's why they were thrown out of the garden. Don't eat that tree. We're putting a flaming sword in front of it and scary angels. Stay away from that thing. But what happens to men when women lead? We become more dumb. Everybody with me? It corrupts the situation. Two reasons to give. Number one, God created it in a certain order to be done a certain way. Number two, if your ladies are leaving, your men become worthless. Now stop for a second. Because our entire nation right now is set up on a paradigm of trying to castrate our world population. What does this look like for us? How do we feel about our military and personal defense now? Is this a problem? We're in the midst of Pride Month. Pride of what? Celebrating sin? When men stopped leading is when we had a problem. Now, am I saying that women can't lead? No, I'm not saying that at all. Praise God that women lead. Where's our men? Where are they? We need Sunday school. We need children's church teachers right now. Where are our men? We need more elders to come up through the ranks. Where are our men? We need more men involvement. We need more men involvement in families. We need today's Father's Day. You know how many women 
or having to come up with some sort of crazy excuse about what Father's Day is when their child hears because they got abandoned a long time ago? Anybody check the statistics on fatherlessness lately in our country? This is Satan's design. Kill the men. Destroy the men. Mutilate the men. Downplay the men. Downplay masculinity. What's left? Chaos. And out of chaos, you can create some sort of order. It's not God's order. It's satanic. Let's not pretend that the world isn't unfolding and unraveling in front of our eyes. Men were called to be men. Be men. Now, that being said, sets us up perfectly for what needs to happen next. And yes, I am going to explain verse 15 because everybody gets freaked out. Some of your translations say, but a woman will be preserved. Everybody see that? Some of our translations right here use the word saved. You say, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell because these things aren't true. It's not what the word saved means. The idea of saved means to be rescued from a worthless life. So what does that include? If you want to know how God designed women, and I know that people outside of these walls are trying to get men pregnant, but it doesn't work, okay? The way that this happens is, is only women have the necessary equipment and the emotional capacity to be able to love children in an incredible way that men will never be able to. Yesterday, my son lost a tooth. Blood all over his hands. I'm like, hold your hand over your mouth. What's wrong? You know what she would have done? Come here, honey. It's okay. We'll take care of it. Let's wash. I'm like, get with the program. You know? I actually had to take his head and yank it out of his mouth. I did, man. What did I want to do? I wanted to hook the, the car up to it and drive off a little bit with a string into it, you know? Women have an emotional capacity that is so much greater. They will have an awesome life through the bearing of children, having children to care for, if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, there's not a greater joy that a woman is ever going to have than loving, mothering, and caring for children. That is the pinnacle of what they've been called to. Well, that sounds so narrow-minded. Cool, God said it. Take it up with them. He's the designer. What do we know? We're seeing the evidence in our society right now of what it looks like for us to try to redefine what God has already established. It's a train wreck. So let's stop and let's back up and let's ask the question, maybe God has got something to say about this situation. All of these other qualities would be a result of godliness. Now, here's the interesting thing. Ladies, I hope we're still friends. Everybody turn back to 1 Corinthians 14. Why? You need to pray for me. I'm the fool in this marriage. <laughs> She's doing great. I'm the one with all the problems. <laughs> pray that she can handle me. There you go. Now watch this. Verse 35. If they desire to learn anything, this is a big thing. You ready? So they're to be silent in the churches, listen to everything that's going on, what's going on, and look what happens. This is beautiful. 
If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Oh, 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 husbands, how well do you know the Word of God? Do you know it as well as your wife? Every single husband who is a believer in Christ has to be, at the bare minimum, an amateur theologian, period. Biblically speaking, there is no excuse. Why is that? Because number one, your wife will search out the Word of God. Number two, she will have questions about the Word of God. Number three, God says, you know what? You can pray about it. That's great. Go ask your husband. You know what that means? We need to have a very patient, loving, and most of all, biblical answer to help lead them through the Scriptures to wash our women with the water of the Word. That's what we're commanded to do. Husbands, you have a large task in front of you. It's not about fixing up your 56 Chevy. It's not about polishing your rifles. And it's not about how many deer you can hang on your wall. It is about knowing God's word and successfully and lovingly communicating and dialoguing with your wife about Christ being the center of all things. That is a heavenly high calling. Well, I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be. You just got to be a man. And this constitutes what a man does in a relationship. If she wants to learn, great. Learn by all means. That's fantastic. But when she's got questions, you got to go to your guy. Guy, you got to have an answer. Does that mean I need to go to Bible college? No. You just need to know the Word of God. 66 books. There's a lot there to learn. I promise you won't exhaust it. So moving on here. They desire to learn anything? Let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's improper for a woman to speak in church it's improper for her to take that role away from men when men should be filling it the idea of their improper is actually a word it means ugly it's base it's shameful so paul then uses his spiritual gift of sarcasm he says was it from you that the word of god first went forth and the answer is no the corinthians didn't have a corner on the truth what's it say after that it says or has it come to you only are you the only church that has God's word? Well, no, that's not the case. Look what he says. If anyone thinks he's a prophet, that he's a preacher or spiritual. Now, real quick, if you want to write in your margin, that refers back to chapter 2, verse 15. Someone who is actually walking with the Lord in a fellowship relationship, okay? Someone who is mature in the faith. If you think that you're a preacher or you're spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. But... If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. What is he saying? He's saying if you've got somebody who is a preacher or who is spiritual in your midst, then the way that you're going to know that they're qualified for what they're doing and worth their salt is the fact that they're obeying what Paul has said as an apostle speaking authoritatively. See, here's the interesting thing. Spiritual maturity is gauged by submission, not knowledge. It's by the one who's being the least that will eventually become the greater of them all. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It's taking the role of a servant. Isn't that what Jesus did? He modeled that for us. Why? So that we would emulate that in the church. So if Paul commands it, we should be submissive to it. Now we move into some more tricky territory. We're almost done. Don't worry. Therefore, here's a conclusion. My brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Now we saw that at the end of chapter 12. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 14. We saw it in the middle of 14. He brings it up again. Desire earnestly to hear clearly and plainly the word of God. There's nothing wrong with that. And do not forbid to speak in tongues. Ha! It is available today. 
When's Paul writing this? Probably about the 50s, 60s AD, okay? What do we know about this idea? Number one, have we at any time forbid speaking in tongues? It's not something we've talked about or covered at all, so we're not going to do that. However, we do need to be knowledgeable from what we understand about early church history about it. Let me give you a few things here that I think are interesting. Number one, this is Clarence Larkin in his book, Rightly Dividing the Word. With the exception of the church at Corinth, where the gift was of no practical value, and Paul proved that in 1 Corinthians 14, the churches do not appear to have possessed the gift. The apostles did not consider it of sufficient importance to mention it in their epistles to the churches. Look through the rest of them. You won't find it in there. It also says, and the fact that it has never been a doctrine of the church is evidence that it does not belong to the church, but was simply a Judaistic sign. Isn't that what we learned before about it? Exactly. This is a guy named Cleon Rogers. Cleon. Leon wasn't enough. We had to make it Cleon. Okay. But he wrote this in 1965. This is Clement of Rome. He's commenting on this. He lived from 30 AD to 100. So was alive around the time of when the church was born, probably the end of Jesus' ministry. He was born at that time. And he lived to see what was going to happen after all of this when the apostles died off the scene. This is his letter to the Corinthian church. He's writing to the same people that Paul wrote to, okay? If there was any early church, sorry, if there was any early church where tongues were practiced, it was here. This was evidently one of the major problems that Paul had to contend with in his letter to them. Yet Clement of Rome never mentions the gift, even when speaking of their spiritual heritage. The same problem of disobedience to authority was present, like all good Christians, right? But it says here, but that of tongues has evidently been solved by their ceasing. He died in 100 AD. It tells you when this probably passed off the scene. And again, when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, I think that 70 AD is when that took place. The next one, this is commenting on the early church fathers' doctrinal content. When you read through from 100 AD to 400 AD, what do you see as the content? Though they were not written as textbooks on theology, their writings cover practically every major doctrine taught in the New Testament. Everything from theology proper, which is the study of who God is, to eschatology, that's the study of end times, is mentioned. Yet there's no evidence for any discussion of tongues. Cleon also writes here about Polycarp. Now here's what's interesting about Polycarp. Polycarp was a personal disciple of the apostle John. John personally discipled Polycarp, okay? So it's a very vital relationship. If he would have known anything about the apostles and their teaching, this would have been it. Polycarp nowhere indicates that tongues are a part of the normal character of Christianity. In fact, he does not even touch on the subject of tongues. And the last one, a guy named Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, who was born around AD 100 and was martyred somewhere between 163 and 167, traveled widely in the Roman Empire and should have come in contact with the phenomena of speaking in tongues. In spite of this extensive traveling and teaching, Justin has nothing to say regarding the gift of tongues. It seems that something occurred between 30 and 100 AD of where the gift of tongues was no longer of use to the church. And of course it wasn't. The New Testament was being established at that moment. The the Jews had been judged for rejecting their Messiah. Why would you need it? It wasn't needed for any other reason. Now we finish with the last verse. All things must be done properly in an orderly manner. That is the hallmark and the characteristic of an environment that is conducive for edifying the church. So even if it's something that seems like a miraculous gift, even if it's something that seems like a a dull, boring, and common gift or something like that, which there are none of those because the Spirit is working through that, regardless of what it is, you know one thing, order 
will be the content of it. Love should be the attitude behind it. The spirit will be the power motivating that. And it will all culminate in the edification of the church. Yes? Amen? Great. Let's pray. God, I thank you for giving us spiritual gifts. I thank you, God, for guiding us in your word properly, verse by verse, just as it says, not adding anything or taking anything away from it, but just seeking to understand so that we could live in a more truthful position with you and how we think, how we exercise our spiritual gifts, how we benefit the body and build it up. Father, thank you uh, that you have given us such revelation as your word. Thank you, God, that it's been tested for 1,700 years now and no one has found an error in it. I'm grateful, God, for the testimony that you've clearly communicated to us. May we heed it, cause our, our, our spirits to ponder upon it. May the Holy Spirit add to us greater understanding. We pray that in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.